Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined, as always, by Martin. Hello, Martin. How are you doing? Hello, Alex. Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Um, quite chipper. Looking forward to another fab podcast. Excellent. Let's try and keep it good then. Um, yeah, this week we're going to take a look at Bill Gates' new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Uh, we also have a fantastic interview with Gavin Stark coming up, and then we're going to finish off with uh, a new idea that you had. We're going to look at unsung heroes of engineering. Uh, and, a couple of yeah. new ideas, only a book review and unsung heroes. So, um, yeah, we're throwing a couple of different ideas out there at the moment. We are, and we'll you know, look forward to people feeding back, letting us know what bits you enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, this week's unsung hero is Frank Whittle, but we'll save the details for later. So Bill Gates wrote a book. It's called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those does what it says on the tin. It's not a, a pun title. He's literally talking about what he thinks the climate disaster is and how we can avoid it from his perspective. Um, I read the book this week, or rather I listened to the audio book commentated by uh, lovely Will Wheaton of Star Trek The Next Generation fame. Um, and yeah, it was very interesting. I know you haven't read it, but I, I assume you understand the the basics behind it. Yeah, and as we say in our ham, uh, in our family, we say we uh, read it with our eyes. No, wrong <laughs> one. Read it with your ears. <laughs> very close, oh, though. Such a build-up, and I've loved it. That's good. <sighs> um, so yeah, I mean, as a... Let's give it a brief review. I think having listened slash read it, it's very approachable. It reminded me quite a lot of, I don't know if you've ever read any Bill Bryson, Mm -hmm. but quite aimed towards the layman. So there's lots of heady topics in there, but I didn't feel lost at any point. I think it was well laid out. Um, I think the structure of it is great in that it demonstrates, you know, where we are now what the issue is. I mean, there's there's statistics in there like pre-COVID, we're producing something like 50 billion tonnes of carbon per year, and we need to get that down to zero. And then it talks very succinctly about where that amount of carbon comes from, who the biggest uh, contributors are in terms of industry and around the world, and then sort of lays out the case for what technologies we could invest in to bring that down how feasible each one is and what sort of needs to happen on a socio-political level to get to that point um, I did, um, yeah i did pick up on i did watch it uh, listen to i'm getting my ears and eyes mixed up all over the place <laughs> i did listen to the uh, bridge version on um, the bbc uh, so they they posted out a few of it and the one i found quite interesting or was as you said it was about the um, steel industry Mm. And thinking of steel industry as being a heavy energy consumption, and that was where most of the issues were for the steel industry around the energy consumption, which I always kind of thinking in a very, yeah, as you said, layman way, um, that, oh, it's energy consumption that's the problem. But actually in the steel industry, the byproduct of making steel itself is CO2. Yeah. So, yeah, there are many industries like that where where it's not just the actual energy consumption, it's the actual chemistry going on within those processes that are generating 
both methane and CO2, etc. And that you know, those sim putting it in a simple way with a real use case, I think, does help to start to cement those ideas as a, another industry that causes a fair bit of CO2 itself. Good pun, yes. Because yeah, it's and that's something that I, I hadn't realised until I'd read the book was to make concrete. One of the elements is obviously cement. And to make cement, there is no way around it other than you burn limestone or heat limestone to a certain degree, and that separates out the carbon dioxide. And that's it. It's just a chemical reaction. There is no um, minimizing that. If you want to make cement, carbon is the uh, byproduct, which means you then have to use carbon capture technologies or something like that. But yeah, if we want to continue using concrete, which is incredibly useful in so many ways and just it's sort of one of those unspoken elements of modern engineering that it has to be there i mean there's no way around it really at the moment well that's where he explores that kind of very that that process thinking really input process output really so each step in that it kind of breaks it down and goes What's the input? Generally, energy consumption. What's the process, which was the bit kind of missed out, like you said. Um, lots of chemical processes producing mm. chemical byproducts. Can you reinvent those processes? And I think he's pointed out, especially like in the steel industry and things like that, that a lot of those industries really haven't tried, you know, invested in innovation. Or if they have, it hasn't been innovation that scales and all that type of thing. Mm. So it, it coming back to the importance of innovation within that and innovating quickly, um, I think is also a key thing because yes, you might be able to innovate the process to reduce the carbon output. Some you won't be able to, but then you're going to have to capture it. Um, yeah. And there was quite a lot of carbon capture stuff going on in the UK not that long ago. And then once again, kind of didn't get the government funding and the innovation required to push it forward. So um, it, it is back to, for me, yes, we know what to do, if you like, with the power grid. It's going to take some time. Um, mm. What about how we innovate in other areas? Yeah, and things like the carbon capture for energy production, there is no intrinsic benefit to it. So obviously companies that produce energy have no inherent desire to pick it up so it's one of those things that unfortunately in a capitalist system mm. you have to encourage so subsidies or tax relief or some sort of incentive to pick it up because you it, it is implementable i mean uh what is it the air carbon capture so just capturing mm. it from the air is very inefficient and difficult to do but if you do it at the point of creation you know you get one in ten part or one part in ten uh, coming out of the factory, but then as soon as it's in the atmosphere, it's one part in a million. So, yeah, being able to filter that is you've got to encourage the kind of people who are producing that amount of carbon to also pick up the the filtering of it as well. And I think we, we touched on this a little bit um, with the interview with Gavin. I mean, Gavin's very much coming from the data aspect of this and making data a key part because without the information... You know, we're, we're quoting some stats there, but really we need to get down to a far granular um, uh, point of view with the information. Um, 
but so so yeah we can we we can definitely look at different ways of making sure we're more informed and therefore we can use that information to innovate in a far more uh, better way um so yeah i think it's a uh, it's great that these people are coming out you know i think and promoting the calls um, even if the economics of it and the subsidies are kind of in the wrong place at the moment, mm. um, are still to be won over. So, yeah, the economic um, balance of it and the inherent, as we've seen, the incumbent um, energy companies are, aren't going to change unless they have to. Mm. So there is a there is a cycle there to be built or broken. Um, but, yeah, 10 years is really where we're looking at, isn't it, to try and solve yes technological problems um commercial problems um and to innovate so um yeah and i think it's something that gavin mentioned as well that comes up in the book that these 10 years are important i mean every 10 years are important because what we implement now will be after that 10 years up what's running for 50 years afterwards so it feels like it's not uh, an immediate thing, okay, well, we can do this now, and then in two decades, we can do something else, and in three decades, we can do something else, because that infrastructure is going to be in place for a long time. So it requires immediate action for long-term gains, essentially. Mm. Um, which, which, is as we've discussed policy. before, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it's very difficult for humans to have that Mm. perspective of go okay well it's not an immediate danger it's down the road but you have to deal with it now because it it is an immediate danger essentially well i don't know if the book went into it because like i said I only called the extracts of it but the, the, the thing that always sticks in my mind is these um tipping points and they're the things that you know i think there's seven or eight tipping points so i don't know if it goes into that but each time we pass a tipping point it is no return um, and that's the problem. This isn't something that you can easily just reverse. Um, and the tipping point is defined, you know, by its definition means that it's gone. Yeah. We, I think we've already passed at least two or three of those tipping points. So it's, um, we are on that graduation or graduum towards, um, um, yeah, potentially destroying the planet, which is not the. <laughs> yeah gloomiest uh, gloomiest thought ever but that's that's the reality is uh, these, these things are not reversible <laughs> yes and also i think another interesting thing from the book is he does take a very holistic approach because it's very easy to look in your own back garden and go okay this is what we need to do but really it's a, a global thing and we have the luxury of approaching this problem from you know a developed first world country but other countries that are coming up developing themselves w want to benefit from because it what we have now is fantastic that's what's often left out of the conversation is the, the amount of carbon we produce does result in some incredible things everything we have in terms of technology and infrastructure and uh, advances comes with that heavy cost and to expect other cultures and nationalities not to benefit from that is a little solipsistic so the approaches he lays out are very much how can we as a a, a world develop in a way that also achieves this uh, zero net zero carbon emissions um and yeah, i thought that was very interesting as well great 
Well, thank you for reading it with your ears. I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> Maybe I'll uh, I'll do a write up and put it up on weareatlas.com. Okay, brilliant. Sounds good. Uh, shall we jump into our interview with Gavin? For this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, uh, we are joined by Gavin Starks, who is uh, CEO of Icebreaker One and DGen. Uh, hello, Gavin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah. We'd have to have a longer list of that, um, all the things you're involved with, Gavin. To... <laughs> so I hope you picked off the ones that are, are most pertinent. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, list of things, isn't it? It sure is. So, yeah, if you'd like to tell us a bit about your background and how you went from studying astronomy, astrophysics and electronic music to where you are now, that would be great. Thanks. Well, um, the common thread is really uh, data uh, and bringing together technology and science and then more recently trying to integrate that with business. So, yeah, I studied astrophysics uh, back in the day, many years ago, um, and went from there to electronic music and then into working at Jodrell Bank, uh, which is a big radio telescope in Cheshire, uh, which was a fantastic experience. Um, and then got sucked into the web uh, in the mid nineties and uh, dragged down to London and have been involved now in about 14 different startups over the last 20 years or so, uh, of which Icebreaker One is the most recent. But along the way, that has involved uh, data companies aggregating. Um, one aggregated about 25% of the world's music. Another created a, an open API service for all of the different ways of doing carbon footprinting in the world. Um, and more recently, I helped set up and then ran the Open Data Institute for four years and chaired the development of the Open Banking Standard. So it's been quite uh, diverse, but bringing together uh, an increasing range of things, you know, the science, uh, data, technologies, plus uh, business and policy, um, and then mix them with specific applications like climate change. Incredible. Uh, taking a step back then, uh, how did your work with Jodrell Bank, do you think, shape your thinking um, these days? I think when you study astrophysics, it, it gives you quite a, a large scale perspective on the universe uh, at large and, and how you might um, think about how everything fits together. So in, in terms of trying to think about systems, uh, which is a lot of what we're, we're doing now, it, it kind of lays a lot of foundational thinking there. But also you're thinking about uh, microscopic things, you're thinking about quantum mechanics, you're thinking about the, the minutiae of how things work. So being able to flip between the uh, very small details and very large systems is is maybe part of the training that I got at uh, Jodrell, but also just large amounts of data. How do you ship large amounts of data around the world? Uh, there was a point uh, at Jodrell where I think they were shipping more data between the telescopes than the whole of the UK internet at the time. Um, Fascinating. So <laughs> quite often you'll find that the high-end science, uh, high-end sciences, whether that's uh, places like Jodrell Bank or NASA or uh, the Large Hadron Collider, they're creating um, patterns there that, or they're creating new ways of doing things that eventually end up in the marketplace. 
but they'll take you know 20 years to transition mm. well yeah as with the the web in a way wasn't it and uh, CERN as well as you said the yeah. first time I cross come across things like uh, MongoDB and these types of different database technologies were very much driven out of the scientific communities require for hunger for data <laughs> yeah no, and you're, you're very much driven by the, the problem statement, you know, and collectively leaning into how do we how do we solve that problem? How do you how do you make a telescope the size of Earth being one of them? You know, that that's they, these are nice questions to to pose um, and then good challenges to have. Yeah. Well, they definitely uh, broaden the mind and the thinking. I mean, uh, Alex and I often waffle on about this in a very uh, amateur scientific way. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, which kind of reminds me of when we first met, really, um, or one of the, uh, the Royal Institute of Engineering, where we were, they were trying to look at how we can use data. I think it was around the um, monetizing of data type of concepts that they were looking at to come up with some report about that. But uh, one thing that really struck me is a bit like a, a good movie. When you when you watch a good movie, it always sticks with you for days and weeks after. And I thought that perspective you brought to that meeting um, was was that that stuck with me and one of the reasons why we really wanted to reach out to you and chat to you. But at the time you were working at the ODI or setting up and uh, as a part of uh, that. Um, so how did you get involved with the ODI? What was the, the steps? Sure, that, 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 that's, that's quite a... Um an easy one to answer. So I was running uh, a data startup uh, called Amy, uh, which was uh, venture backed. And we'd been involved in lots of conversations about how would you get better access to data. In that case, it was specifically around carbon footprinting, energy data, supply chain information, huge amounts of uh, you know, data interoperability questions. Um, and then I, I had about four or five people pinged me to say, you should really apply for this role. It looks interesting. They're setting <laughs> up some new institute to do with data. Sounds up your street. Um, and you know, that, that process you know, went extremely well. And um, we were very privileged, I think, in many ways uh, that we had, uh, obviously, Sir Tim uh, Berners-Lee as, as one of the co-founders. Uh, we had uh, cabinet office backing. A uh, decent amount of funding and funding for multiple years as well. Quite often, when you're bootstrapping your own organisations, you're you, you're kind of constrained to a one-year or a three-year horizon. But we had uh, five years funding at the gate for that, which was was enabled us to lay some deeper foundations uh, and take a more measured approach to building something that was going to last for the long term. So I think there, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the the sort of bringing the business perspective to it as well because i think at the time government was pushing for open data publishing but they hadn't really taken a user needs focus uh, so trying to work out what was it that industry would need or what was it that the end users might need of the information was was something that uh, in part the ODL was designed to help answer so through the the process of working out what what are the user needs uh, we set up a startup programs, we incubated companies, uh, we worked with commercial partners. And, and I think there's an often a refrain for open data, because we, we define open data as data that anyone uh, can use for any purpose for free. So businesses are really keen to consume open data, but not to publish it. They're <laughs> very happy if everybody else opens up their data, but they don't have to. So a big perspective there was to think about 
how do you generate value from data? And there's a, um, a line that I, I'm kind of been using now for a long time, which data increases in value the more it's connected. So what you're trying to optimize, what you should be optimizing for in your business isn't acquisition of data or aggregation of data or putting all your data into a big data lake. It's maximizing for connections. Now, if you're building a big data lake, yes, of course, you can uh, then connect the data once it's all in your tent, but you're not going to get the information we really need because it belongs to somebody else and they're doing the same thing. So the question then becomes, how do you connect it? And so open data is one of the ways you can connect things. And the, the business question is, what's the fair value exchange for that? So I'll give you mine if you give me yours is the, the mm. kind of um, uh, reciprocity within that system. But yeah. it doesn't work for a lot of information. And there's lots of other issues around data to do with security or intellectual property and so on. So we, we define this thing called the data spectrum which, uh, as I said, defines open data as data that can be used by anyone for any purpose for free. Uh, but then we defined uh, shared data and closed data. And then there's a spectrum of activity or licensing uh, in amongst that. And um, that's the, it's the middle bit that we're, I, I'm focused on really at the moment uh, with Icebreaker on this shared data space. But we can come back to that. Yeah, yeah. That was something that was also talked about when I went to the uh, well a year or so ago before COVID, the ODI conference in London, where they were, where they uh, they have different games to initiate those kind of concepts around connections and stuff like that. But there, uh, as you said, there's there was also that kind of concept of uh, well, how do we have data uh, ownership? I forgot or stewardship. Uh, in a way, um, but that, but it also rang quite heavily some of the stuff around open as a word or as a ideology or a political uh, statement. Do you see it as that way open or is it because when we kind of look at things like DNA and the fact that the DNA was a bit of a battle to ensure that that um, was open so people could use it, is there a is there a political angle or a um, ideology wrapped around the word open? I think the word open gets banded around all over the place. It's a bit like the word mm. green. Everybody's been adding the word green to their business cards over the last couple <laughs> of years and saying we're now a green, you know, whatever the role is. Um, open has had a similar journey, I think, as a, as a word. Uh, it gets banded around as open source, for example, as opposed to free software. Uh, you know, there's a whole you know, decade's worth of fighting over that. I think with, with if we focus in on open data specifically, um, I frame it as how you license. So is, is the data itself openly licensed? I think the, the open ideology or the open movement, as it were, there's, there's different tiers to that. There's one which says, look, with our publicly funded assets or publicly funded research, we've already paid for it. So if we haven't got the right commercial model to support the generation of the uh, research and insights in the first place, we should change the model for how it's funded rather than trying to charge sweat rent at the other end. Um, I think more broadly, the word open is mostly used about in the, in the frame of collaboration. And in all forms of collaboration, I think there needs to be some form of value exchange, now, whether mm -hmm. that's a monetary value exchange or other forms of value exchange. You know, with the Human Genome Project, it was seen as, well, the value exchange is everybody having better access to better health and 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 so on uh, it, it, as a public good 
So there you're in, in, in a commons conversation, you're in a, a data commons. Um, and that's it's, you know, a, a huge topic in, it, in, in of itself. Um, when it comes to open collaboration, though, I, I think what, particularly when you're dealing with the commercial sector, the word open is used in lots of ways that are not open at all. Mm -hmm. I've seen many open data initiatives that aren't open at all. You know, and for our definition of open, they're not openly licensed. Um, however, it doesn't mean to say that collaboration can't happen. And I think one of the areas here, looking at how do you create better access to data where the value exchange is explicit, is where we are exploring in this in, in sort of shared data landscape. And, and to maybe give a, an example of that with open banking, so in, in sharing the open banking standards, and in fact, naming the open banking standard as yeah. what it is, um, has led to a lot of confusion because people have confused open banking with open data because it's just because it's got the word open in it. Um, mm -hmm. But the reason it's called the open banking standard is because the standard itself is open. So we openly licensed all of the code and the documentation and the policy frameworks, et cetera, explicitly under a Creative Commons license uh, for all the written work and explicitly under an MIT license for all the code that was written. So the standard itself is open and it encourages an open marketplace. So I think that there's a, there's a very interesting kind of conjoining here of the word open and the word market. You know, if you want open access to a marketplace, you need common roles. You need a common framework for everybody to trade. And therefore, you need visibility of what's going on. The reason we created um, company identifiers, you know, the reason Companies House exists and you have a, um, a company number, was to, to, to try and create a level playing field so that everybody could um, know who's in the system uh, and communicate with them. And, and a lot of the principles of that are very uh, concurrent with the way that the web works. And for me, open banking, if, if in some ways was the first time we'd really codified in a policy instrument the way that the web works. Mm. You know, it, 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 uh, it directly addresses the fact that there is a distributed and decentralized ecosystem of organizations, all of which you want to do different things and all of which you have uh, want either to supply data or, or consume data in different ways. And it creates a common way, a common architecture for us all to do that. Um, but it's very much, for me, not about the technology. It's very much about the processes, the principles, the practice. Uh, it talks about everything from liability transfer to user experience design. So the, these things are things that regulators nece haven't necessarily had to deal with. You know, putting user ex experience guidelines into a bit of a policy instrument is quite novel. Um, so there, I think that open is about collaboration, really. It's, it's about how do we solve these massive collective action challenges that are ahead of us, whether that's a health crisis or a climate crisis or insert your crisis label here. Uh, is there, I mean, obviously it feels like uh, you feel that the open banking standard has achieved a lot of what you set out to achieve. Is there anything in there that you feel maybe fell short of what you expected or? I think there's a couple of perspectives. So firstly, it was very fast from, mm. from how long policy normally takes, you know, getting everybody together, agreeing a way of doing anything and getting that out in the markets 
um, you know, it was, it was regulated within a year of the uh, original standard publication. And it, it took then about three or four years to really be adopted across the whole of the market. But it, isn't, it is now regulated across the whole of the UK market. And, um, you know, that's a huge achievement. And along the way, you know, yes, of course, things could have been done faster. There's lots of learnings uh, from that. Uh, the uh, balancing of the regulatory requirements from a compliance perspective versus the innovation agenda, you know, they waxed and waned at different paces. You know, we could have uh, put the innovation agenda higher up the agenda uh, agenda, uh, and given it more fuel. Um, but actually now there's, I think there's three or 400 fintech companies signed up to the standard and, and they're all getting on with it. Mm. Um, what we're trying to do with the energy sector uh, now is apply those principles and practice. And uh, this is one of the main Icebreaker One projects at the moment, um, is how can we apply that to the uh, energy data exchange across the country? Um, and, and so our ambition there is to try and do that faster because bank, the banking sector has already done a lot of the hard work uh, on identifying what things are easy and what things are difficult so we can go straight into the difficult pieces and try and navigate them. Um, but I think what we, what I do differently, well, one of the things we have to do differently is, is just actually around communication. Fundamentally, it's about culture shift within the way that organizations work. Uh, mm. it, it's not sitting there saying, we've got all the information and we'll harvest it. And then you can come and pay us a, a sweat rent to, to get access. It's, mm. a, it's an open marketplace and there's a similar way to the where the stock market's an open market. Mm, mm. Um, and so I think at the, at the heart of it, it's something very aligned with the commercial framework in which we exist. Uh, and it, it blends with uh, the decentralized distributed nature of commerce. And it blends with the decentralized dis distributed nature of the web. So the, the challenge is, is how to scale this very quickly. <clears throat> Within the banking sector, there are nine high street banks that were regulated. Uh, now hundreds of, of companies lean in. In the energy sector, there currently isn't a regulatory push, uh, and we've mapped out over 8,000 uh, companies across the sector. So it's a very different scale of ecosystem, mm. and it's far more diverse in, in its use cases. You know, you've got smart meters in people's houses at one end. You've got a wind turbine at the other end, and a nuclear power station over there, and a uh, federated microgrids across the region that has a whole blend of ownership and infrastructure uh, that needs to be addressed in some kind of flexibility market um, in the middle. So, um, and we're trying to electrify all of our transport. Mm. So how, how, how does energy and transport come together? So these are wonderfully complex uh, co cohesion and interoperability questions. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it seems the area you love to thrive in. I know at one point you had that complex, uh, you know, solving complex problems as a part of your kind of strap line. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm attracted to intractable <laughs> problems. <laughs> it was good. And I think, uh, yeah, we touched on it. Oh, we're touching on it now. But when did you see, um, when did you sort of make the decision to shift your focus towards this very uh, immediate issue of climate change and a net zero future. Hmm. Um, so about 15 years ago, actually, uh, I kind of got involved with a climate change charity, um, helped to set up the uh, first, uh, actually what became the first national carbon calculator. 
in the world, uh, which was back in the days of a previous company called Amy. Uh, and there we worked with DEFRA and various other groups to enable, I think it was about 2 million homes, 2 million households across the country, self-assess their own carbon footprint of their homes. And um, so that that was um, some mid-2000s, uh, 2005, 2006, was the embryonic start of that. With Icebreaker 1, I think having left, I left the Open Data Institute in 2016 and started thinking about how could we build on the success of open banking, although it was still early days for that as a standard, the design patterns were clearly going to be repeated. Uh, so I helped New Zealand with their implementation of open banking uh, and then Canada. Uh, and uh, out of that, also got to see you know, what happens when you try and do the same thing again in a different country, what what pops up. So we, we wrote lots of FAQs to, to uh, head off a lot of the questions that were uh, going to come from industry. And we saw some design patterns there as well. Um, and then in conversation with some of the financial sector, particularly the insurers uh, and some of the um, capital uh, kind of asset managers and, and, and people like that, they were really trying to get their head around climate and just going, we just don't have access to the data we need. So their um, starting point there was a bunch of insurance companies said, look, can we just have all of the data? And, you know, because that typically what countries or sectors do when they, they want, they think they've got a problem they want to solve, they try and put all the data into one place. And we know that that doesn't work. It doesn't scale and people don't want to do it because they want to hold on to their information and, and choose who they share it with. And so it really calls for this federated, distributed and decentralized approach to uh, data sharing, which we've got the blueprint for in open banking. Hmm. Um, and it enables everyone to keep their data in their own systems. There is no central place into which all the data has to be put. Um, and, and that sort of started, catalyzed a, a conversation with some European funders called Climate Kick. And then we uh, launched uh, or announced our existence uh, by this time last year at Davos. Yeah, and that was, um, I think that's one of the things you, uh, I noticed your, your positioning and, and um, promoting what you're doing quite uh, quite high levels within the uh, political stratosphere now. And did, did you see that um, as a key part, those kind of major political stakeholders, the politicians, the corporations, the public. Um, how do you see those roles or, or are they less important to you for what you're trying to achieve and the goals that you're trying to achieve? Or are they what you're really focusing on? Yeah, I think it's, it's like, like I said, we're not a technology project. I think having been involved in lots of technology projects and initiatives, Things that are technology led tend to be, as most initiatives, you know, in their own filter bubble. Uh, so we, we've mapped out hundreds of initiatives that I would say are technology led. They're not really use case led, but they definitely tend not to include the business user right up front, and they tend not to include uh, policymakers up front. Uh, and really, the the thing that worked incredibly well with open banking was it was actually partially driven by Treasury, saying that we want to create something here and we want to regulate it. But in the in the New Zealand implementation, it was industry-led. You know, it didn't, didn't need to be regulated and it didn't need um, 
government to push it. Government certainly said we'd like you to look at it. But an industry then kind of rose to the challenge and then uh, got on with it. So I think here um, what we're trying to do is bring together these, these policy components, uh, the business needs, uh, and the, then the architectural needs of how do we unlock the data flows across the, the ecosystem uh, so that we can really take a or reduce friction in, across the marketplace. Uh, and that's, it's that kind of more holistic thinking that I think will, um, it takes longer, uh, but it, it has, I think, more people at the table to make it work as, as we go. I mean, are there particular misconceptions, you think? I mean, there's been a few, a lot of publications, I think, at the moment um, around getting to this zero carbon future, um, including, you know, the ex-owner of Microsoft launched his his book. Um, I think Alex is diving through at the moment to do a bit of a, mm -hmm. a review on that. Is, do, you, do you think we understand the challenge ahead of us? Um, in, in I think it's mixed. I think that there's people who've been working on this for many decades in some cases mm. i find it quite fascinating i was over at the the un climate action summit in 2019 and it did feel like a bit of a re reunion <laughs> people who've been involved in the late 2000s around the creation of the climate change act and one of our uh, advisory board is baroness worthington who um helped create the climate change act back in the in uh, 2008 2009 and um it did feel like there was a renewed energy and momentum and it's sort of been 10 years since the financial crisis. So I think everyone had kind of managed to recover from that and then go, oh, there's other problem that we thought we were going to solve 10 years ago, <laughs> but then sort of got put on hold because of other reasons. And now uh, the science or continues to tell us the same story that it's been telling us for decades is we have, this really has to be our decade of action. And in terms of, um, the large-scale infrastructure investments. You know, I've set as a target here of trying to influence $3.6 trillion of investment. And the reason for the picking that number is that's roughly how much we spend per annum on infrastructure mm. uh, globally. Now, all of that has to be demonstrably net zero within the next 10 years or so because all the infrastructure we build over the next 10 years will have a 20 to 50-year lifespan uh, and so it will determine what our um, carbon impact is going to be over the next 10 years. Um, so the, um, the uh, kind of context there for um, how do we manage our uh, investment and capital allocation plans over the next decade are really critical. Uh, so the, the question then is, what is net zero? How do we measure what we have today? It, like what is the effect of the the what are the emissions for our uh, businesses and sectors? How do how do companies manage this? Um, and from my previous experience in setting up a carbon footprinting company, we created an environmental score for all two point seven million companies in the UK. Um, it's really hard work, and most organisations don't have the data they need in order to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And if the companies themselves don't need uh, don't have the information they they need then you can guarantee that the investors don't either and the insurers don't and so on. And so there's a whole value chain here of, uh, of information exchange, which everybody needs access to. Uh, and you know, we'd love to get to the point where an investor could mandate the data flows that they need to prove that their investment is going to be net zero all the way through design, construction, 
operation and decommissioning uh, of a piece of large-scale infrastructure. Um, and that's possible. And it's yeah. possible in a way that it wasn't possible five years ago. And um, I think the decommissioning bit, I've always been fascinated by because my background is nuclear industry and the problems with decommissioning of nuclear industry is huge. Um, I, I'm also appreciating we're, we're getting a bit close to the end of your time, <laughs> Gavin. So uh, just one last question, really. Uh, just uh, what, what is your what is your real motivation? I mean, what do you think drives you forward? Uh, what, what do you... What makes you excited by everything that you try and achieve? Well, I think overall, I think once you d delve into the climate science, it is the existential threat of our age, of our era. Mm. If we get it wrong, uh, many bad things happen. Um, so that that's a that's a big driver. Um, the second driver for me is building, helping to build the web of data. You know, we we've had the web for quite a long time now. We still haven't properly cracked the web of data, and that's because the the original well, the web web of documents, if you like, uh, was able to ignore copyright to a large extent, and we so, we've, we're still sorting that mess out. But because data is kind of all pre uh, uh, covered by legal clauses and and con contracts and and value in a different way. We need a slightly different approach to how we enable that. We've got the information architecture, that's the web. You know, we don't need to modify that. Uh, we've got the internet, that's super. So there's a kind of coming of age of the internet of things, a coming of age of earth observation and so on. Really the, the, the big innovation point here is around licensing and, and policy with a, a capital P and a lowercase p. And I think if we can unlock the data flows here at, at web scale, uh, then we'll not just address or be able to better address climate, but our various other existential threats ranging from biodiversity and species collapse through to healthcare. So I think there's there's lots of reasons for getting this right. So and it's it's a complicated enough problem that there isn't going to be an end point. So that's <laughs> you'll always, always have work to do. Barry, yeah. Fantastic. Well thank you so much for joining us, Gavin. It's been a real pleasure and uh hopefully we can chat again soon. Super, thanks very much. Thank you. Here we are in the Unsung Heroes of Engineering. Um, this is a new section you suggested. I think it's a good, good approach because it gives me a chance to read about people that maybe I would have otherwise not heard of and also to tell people about some interesting characters. Um, and this week we have Frank Whittle, who is often um, credited with sort of single-handedly inventing the turbo jet engine. Uh, he was, uh, oh, let's have a look at the timeline again. So yeah, he was born towards the start of the 20th century, um, always interested in engineering and flight. Uh, and then as there was the build-up towards the Second World War, he uh, he joined the RAF, which is where he but he joined in the engineering section where he sort of put forward his thesis for um, jet engines or power jet engines. And there was a quote I spotted because as a non-engineer, I was wondering if you could answer this for me. He thought, why not substitute a turbine for a piston engine? I'll put that question to you because I'm not entirely sure what both of those things specifically are. 
Well, I, you know, one of my jobs in the past was do uh, do control systems for gas turbines. So I have done quite a lot of programming and controlling of gas turbines. So not necessarily from the mechanical standpoint, but for definitely from the um, understanding the controls of those gas turbines. But ultimately, um, the gas turbine is a far more efficient efficient engine because it, it, it rotates round. Um, so at the front end of the turbine is sucking in air um, mm-hmm. with the compressing of that air. And then in the center of it, um, the fuel's added and then you burn that fuel, which causes the, the hot gases to expand rapidly out the back end of the engine, um, which is the hot end, which then causes causes the power power of the turbine to spin, where the um, conventional engine or the engines used in cars, piston engines, uh, they, they're really just, they're going up and down. They're doing a suck, squeeze, bang, blow is the uh, term for the, especially a four-stroke engine. So you're sucking in there, squeezing that air, banging it, then blowing out the exhaust gas. So it's not a continual um, process happening. With the with the piston engine, it's, it's it's got stages to it, and that's why we end up with like four cylinder engines or twelve cylinder, whatever it is, to smooth out that kind of power delivery. Even though it's possible to have a single 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 cylinder, especially on the two stroke. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a far more efficient way of converting energy, um, and that's why they became so popular. But they, I mean, they do have their. Um, downsides you know they, they're not as flexible as a piston engine that's why they're very good in cars piston engines because you know you put your foot on the accelerator it can um, ramp up and ramp down quite nicely and smoothly but you need to have a gearbox because it has a shorter um, power range um, and therefore yeah the gas turbine really controls those various stages by either bleeding off um compressed air so you don't get as much air into that compression area or Mm. um controlling the fuel Um, and some of the um, ge engines i used to work on used to have these things called staging where you used to be able to turn on more um burners um, and then throttle back the bleeds and all that so you'd be able to control in various stages the power and speed of the uh, turbine using Mm. the, the controls of both the compression and the fuel delivery which in a in a piston engine you're really doing that via um, or, or, or the power range you're you're controlling more through the gearbox um, even though the air and the fuel are a similar type of delivery. Okay, so so Frank Whittle's invention then, I guess the revolutionising element for um, aircraft is it's one it's more efficient because you're actually putting the exhaust to use as well. I know that much and also it's is it just it's much easier to control the levels of power when you're flying is that also one of the the benefits yeah well you get more power basically right. you know the size same size engine um you get far more power out of a, a, a turbo but yeah that, that's the, the the turbo prop bit is when you said you get power out of the exhaust you do but actually most of the power comes out of feeding that power back through the turbo prop to uh, the fan at the front of the engine mm. so it's actually the fan that gives you all pretty much most of that thrust right um, so when you look inside an engine you see that great big fan blade at the front of it or the arrangement of fan blades at the front of it that's really what's giving you a thrust so if you're using a 
a turboprop for a power generation, you don't have that fan blade at the front, and therefore, mm. you know, you're still putting through, you know, megawatts of power. Uh, the ones I used to work on are about 40 megawatts, but obviously the gas turbine isn't going anywhere, or it's, it's feeding a, a generator rather than a, a fan. Um, yeah, so basically it's really there just to move the move the fan blades around to give you the thrust. But it can give you a lot of thrust, that's for sure. Fascinating stuff. And I know he, uh, Frank Whittle was, yeah, he was a member of the RAF leading up to and at the start of the World War. Uh, and I, I believe that his designs were not adopted initially, which led to him starting a private company, Power Jets Limited, I think it is. Mm, that's right. Um, yeah, which was then in 1940 nationalized so that they could use the um, the engines in their planes. But I don't think it was, I think it saw very limited use towards the end of the war in 1944 mm. onwards, um, hunting down V2 rockets, which well, obviously had a huge amount of speed. There is an argument there because he renewed the pattern in 1935. Um, so, you know, the, his design or his approach of doing it has been around for a few years. And obviously, wars are quite distracting. So it's one of these things where he may well have had a technology there that could have ended the war far quicker. But, mm. it, you know, how, how do you know and when do you know when to adopt these technologies? Um, as you said, it wasn't until the end of the war that those... those uh, planes started to get powered in mm. a different way but everyone's you know everyone still likes um the the, the spitfire type of uh engine that was um the classic sound of a spitfire but the jet engine could have easily uh outperformed and potentially outmaneuvered um spitfires yeah i guess you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that if it isn't broke and actually works quite well then better not risk everything to have something that could be twice as efficient, three times as efficient. Um, I mean, and it, what is the the real difference in terms of efficiency? Obviously, all planes that we get now, or prior to current global events, mm. we got flying off on holiday to Spain and Greece are tend to be turbojets. Is the output magnitudes higher or? Well, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure, but whenever you look at the size of them, if you, you physically look at a gas turbine, they are pretty small things. You know, they're not huge. So when I was used to used to program them, yeah, 40 megawatts of power um, coming from something that could easily fit in, um, you know, the smallest room in your house um, is a huge amount of power. So... I'm guessing, but I've got no empirical evidence that yet. You're talking, yeah, orders of magnitude. Even when you look at the front end of a you know, a Spitfire, it's basically loads of pistons all stacked around in a ring, trying to create that kind of rotary feel mm. around it. Um, but there have been other rotary delta um, engines used in cars as well, um, and. Uh, they, they use a kind of delta shape rotary engine uh and yeah they, they tend to be they use a lot of it lose a lot of um, fuel those but they, they you know so it's all about that kind of practicality of the use of it because otherwise we'd have gas turbines in cars you know mm. they would have been adopted into them um 
but yeah, you, there are some great little YouTube videos. You can get these kind of really miniature gas turbines, desktop gas turbines, and people start them up, and they're mm-hmm. incredibly powerful things for the size of something like a shoebox. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact uh, ratios, but fascinating stuff. Fascinating. I've often wondered how they, if they could be used, you know, as a part of the hybrid car, where you would be able to charge, use them as a little generator to charge um, electric batteries or whatever. But uh, I guess smarter people than I have uh, looked into that. Yeah, get the patent in. See what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think. I mean, he obviously Frank went on to. I mean, continue in the same vein, working with. Uh, power jets for the rest of his life and i know um yeah many improvements uh i know he found it very stressful as well and i think i think he had a couple of mental breakdowns especially around that war period where the company was nationalized and back but um yeah it sounds like he had a, a very prolific career he was also sir frank whittle as well of course um he was knighted on leaving the raf um but yeah, I think he's well deserved as uh, one of BBC's hundred greatest Britons. Hmm. Excellent. I would certainly give him that spot. Well, thank you for digging that up. I look forward to see what else you come up with, Alex. For sure. I enjoy the search. Okay. Well, that is it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. As always, I have a quote to finish on. Um, I thought I would take the opportunity this week, as we did dip our toes into the literary world to steal a quote from Bill Gates uh, directly. This is earlier on in the book, so as he's laying out his arguments, uh, he says, to sum up, we need to accomplish something gigantic we have never done before, much faster than we have ever done anything similar, which I think really puts across the enormity of the issue, but also the fact that we can, as a species, tackle it. We can. If we've got our minds to it and we've got a goal, I think that's what we can achieve. It's um, just making sure those things align. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Martin, and I will uh, see you next week. All right. Look forward to it. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out more.